Well, good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? I'm glad you're here with us. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, the New Testament to Acts chapter 6. And just so you know, in case you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series right now called Viral. It's a study of this ancient document we know as Acts. It essentially records how the early church and the good news of God's love and grace uh, in Jesus went, as we would say today, went viral, spreading very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. And uh, so far in the study, we have seen uh, we've seen the church grow from a very small group of Jesus followers in chapter one to now somewhere between eight and fifteen thousand believers who, uh, in Jerusalem, faced uh, little resistance until chapter four, when the church. And its message uh, began to meet some opposition. In fact, that opposition turned to outright persecution uh, when the religious elite in the temple in Jerusalem, out of anger and jealousy, arrested the apostles, interrogated them, uh, tortured them, uh, and then eventually let them go, but ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore or else. And yet those threats and those acts of intimidation didn't stop the apostles or the entire church from doing what they were compelled to do. Uh, through their words and actions, share the good news of Jesus with the people uh, of their city. Uh, We left off last week being told that the word of God continued to spread and that the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests even came to faith in Jesus. And see, because of all that, because uh, of the church's uh, growth uh, and influence, uh, tension in Jerusalem mounted amounted to the point where some of the religious leaders were about to do the unthinkable, kill somebody. Side note, the persecution of Christians that started in Jerusalem continues today in many parts uh, of the world. And we're hearing more and more about it uh, on the news and reading of it in the um, headlines. According to Open Doors, a nonprofit organization that monitors global persecution, every month 322 Christians are killed for their faith. Every month. 214 church properties are destroyed every month. 722 forms of violence are committed against Christians. Beatings, abductions, rape, imprisonment, etc. Every month. Our own U.S. Department of State reports that Christians in over 60 nations Uh, face persecution in some form or another from their governments uh, and or simply neighbors because of their belief in Jesus. But here's the thing. This persecution is nothing new. It began back in the first century, back in Jerusalem. In fact, historians argue that it actually contributed to the growth of the church as Christians confronted the persecution, confronted death itself with amazing faith and courage. Um, Stephen, uh, the first Christian to lose his life because of Jesus, is the prime example. So let me read a textual summary of his experience um, because it stretches over almost two chapters. So I'll give you the, sort of the Ray, Ray K abbreviated summary. But it, his story starts, at least uh, most of his story starts in chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. We're told that Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of freedmen who began to argue with Stephen. But they couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses, against God. They stirred up the people, the elders, the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. 
They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. And then he begins recounting the history of Israel. And he ends with this statement. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, hopefully uh, some of you had the opportunity to read this text prior to this morning. Uh, And if so, then you realize that there's a lot of information contained in this section. I mean, there's a lot... A lot of details regarding history and culture and theology, making it a very challenging text to cover in the time that we have. But I'm up for the challenge, so here's what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. We're going to just consider a few basic questions, and I I think that'll help us, okay? So here's the first question. Who exactly was Stephen? And if you were here last week, then you have a pretty good idea who he was. You know that he was a follower of Jesus, because we talked about him at the beginning of chapter 6. He was a wise and godly man. He was one of of seven individuals chosen by the church, affirmed by the apostles, to help ensure that widows in the church, all of them, were were being served and cared for well. Uh, He was a Hellenistic Jew by background. In other words, uh, he was from a group of Jewish people who who were born outside of Palestine. They were born outside of Israel, uh, somewhere else in the Roman Empire, and therefore they spoke Greek as their first language. They read the Septuagint, which was the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament. That's what they studied. They went to Greek-speaking synagogues, like the one that's mentioned here in the text, called the Synagogue of Freedmen, made up of Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. And no doubt, this was Stephen's synagogue. This is where he went and studied the scriptures. But after naming Jesus as Messiah, after being baptized as a believer... Uh, after being involved with this rapidly growing community we know as the church, uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't so popular among his synagogue friends uh, who argued with him about his new faith in Jesus. But uh, we're told that they couldn't really stand, stand up against the wisdom that God gave him when he spoke to them. So instead of arguing with him, they gave up and they just got some people to lie about him saying that he was blaspheming Moses and blaspheming God, and they stirred up all this controversy uh, in, the, in the synagogue, and eventually they, they take him over to the temple before the Sanhedrin, which was the temple court made up of the religious elite, the same group of people who arrested and interrogated and tortured uh, and threatened the apostles. 
And there, these false witnesses stood up and said basically the same thing. They said, this fellow, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. We've, we've heard him say that Jesus will destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses. And so the high priest, uh, the same one who interrogated the apostles, he, just, he, he looks Steve, at Stephen and he says, are these charges true? And what does Stephen say? Well, he says a lot. Uh, and he begins by saying, brothers and fathers, listen to me. And then he goes on a long, detailed speech in which he responds to the charges uh, against him, namely by, by, by answering two questions. Are you teaching against the temple? Are you teaching against the law of Moses? And he answers the question by reviewing the entire history of Israel, which we don't have time to do. So I'm going to give you the Ray K summary here. In regard to the temple... Uh, Stephen, Stephen says, look, I am not teaching against the temple, but I am saying we don't need it. And he starts his argument by citing Abraham. He says, he says you know, the God of glory appeared to, 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 the, to our father Abraham. In other words, Abraham, Abraham encountered God. Abraham knew God. He was led by God. He experienced the grace and favor of God. And you know what? He didn't have the temple. Then he goes and he mentions Joseph. And how God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles, Stephen says. I, you know, he talks about how God used Joseph to deliver uh, his, his father uh, Isaac and his, his brothers and their families from famine and certain death. Joseph didn't have the temple. He goes on, he talks about Moses who met God where? In the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Sinai. God worked in and through Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And guess what? Moses didn't have the temple. And he goes on and on. He references Aaron. He references Joshua and David and Solomon, who, Solomon, who eventually built the temple. But he says to the leaders, he goes, but even you know that, that, that the most high God doesn't live in houses made by human hands. He's not some false tribal deity confined to a box totem or building. He says, you know as well as I do, God himself said, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Where, or where will my resting place be? So you see, what Stephen was doing, was, and doing quite well, was establishing the fact that the temple was nice, but wasn't needed to know and have a relationship with God. I mean, he wasn't dissing it. He was just saying it wasn't necessary. But that idea created a problem for the religious elite, as, as a, especially as it related to the law, because for them and to them, to know God, to relate to God, required that you obeyed the law of Moses perfectly. And when you didn't, you needed to sacrifice. In order to sacrifice, you needed the temple. Are you following the logic there? And so this is, this is what Stephen is addressing. So he talks about the temple. And then he goes on to talk about the law. And what does he say about the law? Well, he points out that Moses received the law. He says, Moses received the living words of God to pass on to us. But what happened? He says, our ancestors refused to obey him. In other words, our people, the Israelites, disobeyed the law as soon as it was given to them. They drifted into idolatry. I mean, understand, Stephen was saying to the religious leaders that the temple is nice, but it's not necessary to know God. The law is good, and it's important. You can't ignore it but neither can you fully obey it. You never have, you never will. And that's when he says, you stiff-necked people. 
You're just like your ancestors. You, you always resist the work of the Spirit in your lives. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? He says they even killed the one who predicted the coming of the righteous one, Jesus. And now you've betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law but have never obeyed it. The title that Stephen uh, applies to Jesus here, the righteous one, is unique. Uh, using it, he, he basically identifies Jesus as the only one who is truly righteous. The only one who has truly fulfilled the law perfectly. Now think about it. How do you fulfill any law? How do you do that? Well, you either obey it or you pay the penalty for violating it, right? I mean, there's a light out here on St. Charles Road at the intersection. Uh, the law says that you can't go through a red light. So there are two ways to fulfill that law. First, stop. Don't go through the red light, which I highly recommend. Uh, or, or if not, go through the light and get ticketed and have to pay the penalty. Whatever the case, the law has, the law has a claim on you. And what Stephen is saying to the religious leaders about the law of God, he's saying that what Jesus did was live the perfect life, free of any violation of God's law. He fulfilled the law perfectly, yet willingly paid the penalty for our violation of it. And so when you believe in him, uh, Jesus is not just the righteous one, he is your righteous one. And Stephen looks at his accusers and he says, but you guys are so stubborn. You're, you're, you're incredibly stiff-necked. You, 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 your ears are uncircumcised, which is a way of saying you, you act like pagans. You know, you've, you've historically resisted the, the God's spirit at work. You've persecuted the prophets who God sent, predicting the coming of Messiah. Now you've murdered the Messiah, Jesus. You who have this law, but have never obeyed it. And with amazing courage, Stephen, he offers this brilliant response to his accusers who don't take it very well. Uh, they do not take it very well. They are enraged by what he's saying. They get what he's saying, which brings us to the next question. What did Stephen see? Well, the first thing he saw was his accusers were pretty angry. <laughs> they were furious. They were gnashing their teeth at him, which is an idiomatic way of describing visible rage. The religious elite in the temple were so incensed, absolutely incensed about what he was saying, they could no longer physically contain themselves. They became a vicious mob of religious people. But just as the, uh, the violence was about to erupt, Stephen sees something else. He glances toward the heavens and he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, there's a lot of theology and Old Testament imagery in that statement, but for the sake of time, let me hit the most significant points. Stephen's vision here is that of a is out of the cosmic courtroom. It's a cosmic courtroom scene with Jesus, the righteous one, he calls him, the son of man, which was an Old Testament messianic title Jesus applied to himself. He sees Jesus at the right hand of God, the divine judge. And what is he doing? He's standing there before the judge, standing there before the Father as our spiritual representative. In his letter to the early church, uh, the Apostle John sort of describes the same scene with similar language. He explains it this way. He says, you know, Jesus is our advocate. He is our, our legal representative. He speaks on our behalf. 
John writes to the church, he says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He uses the same phrase, the same title. Jesus, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, in a courtroom, that's the, that's the job of legal counsel, right? I mean, if I'm in court, my defense attorney speaks for me. He stands uh, on my behalf. He knows what to say. He makes a good case, a case that I can't. He understands the law, understands what the law demands. Yet recognizing that, neither John nor Stephen call Jesus the persuasive attorney or the slick one or the merciful one even. What do they call him? Both refer to him as the righteous one. And that's important. Here's why. Because sometimes I think we as Christians view Jesus as standing, as standing before God, sort of begging for our clemency. You know, clemency on our behalf. Do you know what I mean by that? It's like we view Jesus standing before the Father saying, please, 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 Father, please, please. Stephen, John, Ray, they're all knuckleheads. You know, they're all broken, wounded guys. They've, they've sinned again. It's what they do. It's who they are. Uh, I'm begging you to, to let them off the hook this time. Show them some mercy. Put them on probation maybe for a while. Let's cut a deal. Sometimes that's how we view it. But that's not how it is. Jesus is our advocate What does that mean? It means he doesn't stand before the throne of God begging for mercy. He's not trying to persuasively convince God to be lenient toward us. He is the righteous one. And therefore, he is pleading for justice. He is demanding justice. Because the law of God requires it. The law of God requires judgment of sin with the penalty being death. But Jesus has an open and shut case. Because as our legal representative, he paid the penalty for us. He lived the perfect life we could never live, died the death we all deserve to die. He was punished in our place. Therefore, justice has been graciously served. And therefore, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the righteous one, stands before the Father and demands justice. He demands our freedom, which is granted. That's the scene. That's the scene that Stephen is witnessing. That's the scene he's describing. In his commentary in the book of Acts, well-known theologian F.F. Bruce puts it this way, Stephen, who's been confessing Christ before men, now sees Christ confessing his servant before God. Translation. At this point, no no one on earth was standing up for Stephen, but in heaven, Jesus certainly was. And the Holy Spirit grants Stephen a glimpse of, of this ultimate reality. And he's, it seems like Stephen gets so excited by what he sees, what he knows to be true, he seems to forget what was happening around him and the brutality and the injustice and the treatment he was receiving. You see, to the degree that you and I grasp the reality, the, the, to the degree that you and I grasp the fact we have an advocate will be to the degree we will be able to take slander and injustice and criticism and rejection or worse in our own lives. Stephen, as he describes what he sees, his accusers go berserk. 
They flip out. They cover their, so, so, so immature, they cover their ears, you know, and they start screaming at him, and they, they charge him, and they grab him, and they drag him out of the city, and they begin to stone him, which is just a brutal way to die, a brutal, long, agonizing way to die. In fact, there are many nations of the world who still practice this. And, you know, it's interesting, the text says that in order to better throw their stones, you know, to get better aim and better leverage, some of the guys take off their coats and they lay them at the feet of a young Jewish religious leader who was there overseeing the whole thing, a guy named Saul, who, like Stephen, was also a Hellenist, perhaps even a member of the same synagogue, a guy who we will see very soon go to lead an intense persecution of the church in Jerusalem, but eventually come to see he puts his faith in Jesus and becomes known as the Apostle Paul. And although the text doesn't say this, I am convinced that this, this event impacted Saul on a deep, deep level. I mean, it had to, considering what he, what he saw happen here and what Stephen did, how he did it. Well, what did he do? The text says that while they were stoning him, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, he prayed. He said, Lord, receive my spirit. But that's not all he prayed. He doesn't just pray for himself. That's what's so unusual. It's so unexpected. so out of the ordinary. While the stones are pummeling him to death, in his final moments of consciousness, Stephen also prays for what? For his accusers, his attackers, his persecutors, his killers. He cries out in a loud voice, loud enough for them to hear. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. See, here's the thing about Stephen. Understanding the greater reality, he handles the lies, the injustice, the persecution, the pain, the suffering. He handles it all with just incredible grace. Incredible grace. At the beginning of this this scene, before, before before they drug him out of the city and they're back in the temple, we're told that they, they put, they put um, uh, Stephen up in front of the Sanhedrin and we're told that all of his accusers are intently staring at him and, uh, and questioning him, interrogating him. And right before Stephen speaks, the text says that they looked at him and noticed that he had, he had the face like an angel. Now, no one has ever said that about me. <laughs> I know you're surprised by that. No one has ever said, man, right before Ray got up to speak, he looked like an angel. I have had people say, man, if you grow horns, we're all in trouble. So I've had that. I've had people say that. But no one's ever said, oh, man, Ray looked like an angel before he got up to speak. But that's what they said about Stephen. Why? What, what, was, that, what was that about? What did that mean? Did he look like a chubby-faced, rosy-cheeked cherub? I mean, did he, did, he, did he have some kind of glowing aura emanating from his head? No, I don't think so. So what did it mean? It meant that as Stephen was on trial for his very life, facing the lies, the slander, the injustice, and the brutality of men who were afraid of losing their power and control over the people of Jerusalem and who would do anything to keep it, even murder, Stephen wasn't gnashing his teeth. He wasn't snarling with hate, trembling in anger, screaming of revenge. He wasn't afraid. He was noticeably calm. And although he spoke the truth with authority, he did so with 
with grace and compassion even toward his enemies. Right to the very end when he prayed out loud, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I.e., Lord, be gracious to these people. When I was reading that this week, I, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, in the face of those who mistreat us in much, in much lesser ways, what do we do? What do we do? Do we pray for them? And if we do pray them for them, how do we pray? The text records that after he prayed, when he said this, Stephen fell asleep, which I like. I like that. It's, the, it's this idea that it, it implies this, this fearless and peaceful death. And so what was the result of all this? Two things, really. First, the brutal murder of Stephen unleashed a citywide attack on all the followers of Jesus. Now, the beginning of chapter 8 says that on that day, on that very day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And then from house to house to house, Christians, men, women, students, children were hunted down, dra- dragged out of their homes, beaten, pulled off to prison, some of them killed. But the second thing, and maybe even more important in terms of impacting us, was this that all the believers except the apostles scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. See, up until this point, up until this point, the church and her message of, of Jesus and the grace of God, for the most part, remained, remained local, remained contained in Jerusalem. But if you recall, Jesus said to his followers, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, but in all of Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So, in short, it is, it is through this outbreak of persecution that the church, some 15,000 strong, heads out on mission for the very first time. And they begin to fulfill the command of Jesus, bringing the news of, of God's grace and the offer of, offer of life to both the greater region and to the world. But history tells us many of those same believers would not escape persecution. I mean, like, like Stephen, they too would experience the brutality of it in many different forms. But see, it was the way that these Christians faced that brutality. It's the way that they, they handled it with such faith and courage, resolve, and grace that caught the attention of the surrounding culture through their witness. So that's what the word martyr means. It was through the, their witness, the way they handled, handled all this, people, people of the culture knew there was something different about these Christians. There was something different about them, and the world stopped. The world took notice of their faith, of their courage, and began to listen to the message. And the church continued to increase in number. And the famous words of the early church leader Tertullian Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. Listen, the persecution of Christians that started in the first century Jerusalem continues today in over 60 nations of the world. And like Stephen, many men, women, children give their lives for naming the name of Jesus. And we should, we should be aware of that and we should pray for them and do whatever we can to promote justice on their behalf. But here's my warning. In the context of our American comfort, 
Let's not be so naive to think that we remain immune to the possibility of such injustice. The history of the church indicates otherwise. So here's the final question. If you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, what are you willing to give? What are you willing to give up for him? Because if we're honest, I think we have to admit that most of the, most of the time we, 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 you know, we avoid giving up most anything that we have. We avoid giving up our personal goals, our, our desires, our money, our time, our energy uh, for the cause of Christ, let alone giving up our lives. But what are we willing to give then? And if faced with the decision, the choice, would you be willing to sacrifice everything for Jesus? I believe as Christians that I'm called, you're called, we're all called to be like Stephen, you know. And regardless of the outcome, regardless of the outcome, remain faithful to God, even when up against enemies, critics, setbacks, illnesses, injustice, poverty, prejudice, and every other form of opposition. Because no matter what, we know, we know the God of justice will someday come through with his promise to judge uh, and make all things right. But Jesus, the righteous one, our righteous one, has graciously provided the way of our freedom. And so on earth, in the midst of pain and suffering, whatever form, like Stephen, we too can look to heaven from where our help and eternal rescue comes. And we too, with courage and grace, can name the name of Jesus and endure whatever comes our way. May we be that kind of courageous people. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is so easy for all of us to walk through life, through our daily routines, school, jobs, eating, drinking, um, entertaining. Just walk through our daily routines and forget the fact that your church suffers. In places like China, North Korea, Afghanistan, over 60 nations, in over 60 nations, Lord, your church suffers. Where men and women, children, students who name the name of Jesus um, are persecuted because of it. And it's so easy for us to just walk through our lives every day forgetting that, that reality. Forgive us for that. I pray that we would pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, some of whom are called to make the ultimate sacrifice, like Stephen. Others lose their jobs, their homes, their freedom. May we not forget them. May we pray for them and, and do whatever we can to call for justice on their behalf. But Lord, may we never be so naive to think that um, such injustice could never touch our lives. Because the world changes very quickly. History tells us that your church has historically gone through persecution. And so the question is to us, you know, what does that mean if it were to touch us? Because for us, persecution is maybe, you know, being made fun of or criticized or 
rejected, ignored. But what if, what if such persecution became greater and more intense? What would we do? How would we live? What would we see? And I pray, Lord, that we would see, just like Stephen, the ultimate reality of Jesus, the righteous one, standing before you, the creator of the universe, demanding justice, demanding our freedom because justice has been met through him, through his sacrifice. For he lived the life we could never live. He paid the penalty for the death that we all deserve to die. And uh, he demands our freedom. And you graciously, you graciously grant it to us. And so no matter what happens here on earth, no matter our pain, suffering, illness, injury, persecution, we understand the reality of what, what is ahead for us. And so we can handle it. We can handle it. And I pray that we would be that kind of people, that kind of church, who would not only stand up for the injustice um, uh, that's experienced by other people, other Christians, but we would stand up in our own towns, our own communities for the name of Jesus. And that we would be willing to sacrifice our time, our energy, our stuff, whatever you call us to sacrifice for the good of your kingdom. Because Lord knows the, the world needs the world needs Jesus. And so we stand for him today. Give us the courage to do that, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? So those are nice words to sing. Actually, they're right from Scripture. The question is, is that true for us? Because, you know, so oftentimes in life, we look for help in a lot of different places, you know. If we feel like we're struggling in life, we look to money to help us uh, because money buys us things and they help us feel maybe better about ourselves or maybe a little bit better than other people. If we're sick, we look to the doctors to help us. And that's not a bad thing. None of that's necessarily bad in and of, in of themselves. Um, but, you know, where ultimately does help come from? You know, religion says help comes from you being a better person. And you got to feel better about yourself and feel better than other people. And But religion just crushes you. There's no help there. There's only hurt. There's only woundedness. There's only guilt. Uh, our help comes from not things, not money, uh, not doctors, certainly not religion. Our help comes from God. Our help comes from the Lord. Ultimate help comes from Him. That is the reality. And uh, it's not just because, you know, we see that. It's because we've received it. We've experienced it through Jesus, the righteous one, who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he pleads not for our, you know, leniency. He pleads for justice. He demands it. And because of him, God delivers freedom to us. Understanding that big picture, seeing it, embracing it, and following after Jesus, that's what it means to be a Christian. I hope you guys understand that. And if not, talk to somebody from the church that you know. Let them talk to you about their faith in Jesus. Maybe you're going through some tough things in your life and you need help. You're looking for true help and you, you want uh, someone to pray with you. Some of our prayer team folks will be down here following this service and uh, they're here for you, okay? 
I hope you can come back next week because as we're going to see, this persecution of the church just gets started. I mean, it gets pretty violent and vicious. And, uh, and what happens? What happens to the church in the midst of the brutality? And what we're going to find is uh, it has impact on us today. So come back next week. We'll talk a little bit more about that, okay? In the meantime, have a great week. Let me pray for you. And now, Lord, I pray that uh, those, the words of those, that song, just, they just wouldn't be empty words. That it would be the hope, the prayer, the desire of our own hearts. That this week, no matter what comes our way, good, bad, or in between, even injustice or, or ridicule or some form of persecution, I pray that we would lift our eyes to you and that we would see the reality of life that it's more than just the stuff that we have. It's more than just this moment on earth. And as we see that, may may we find the faith and hope and courage to persevere through whatever. And so I ask that your hand of grace and peace and strength and protection rest on your church today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.